Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Robert Puckett, Molly Keck, and Janet Hurley. So this week on Unwanted Guests, we are going to kind of continue on our thread of stored product pests. So we have covered uh, a few other ones in previous podcasts. So if you're interested in uh, pantry beetles or carpet beetles, you can look at the previous episodes and listen to those. But today we are going to be talking about stored product moths. And while I'm, why I'm saying stored product moth instead of a pantry moth is because we are talking about not only the moths that you might find in your pantry attacking cereals and pastas and stuff like that, but we also need to be concerned about the clothes moths that you might find in other areas of your home actually feeding on clothing and other textiles. So for you guys, what is probably the most common moth that you guys get questions on? Mine hands down is Indian meal. Agreed for sure. Indian meal moth. I mean, there's only three, right? There's the anguamois or however you pronounce it, which is French, I believe, and the Mediterranean flower. And I think for most houses, it's the Indian meal moth. That's the more common one. I dealt with the uh, flower moth once with a, um, company that did a lot of work with flower type products, like a bakery type thing, but that's just because you have so much of it everywhere and it's, you know, blowing in the air and there's all these nooks and crannies and, and machinery that they're in. Um, but I think for most homeowners, it's Indian meal moth. Janet, do you get Indian meal moth as well? I'm assuming. Yeah, I was, I was just going maybe a random clothes moth, but mostly it's Indian. Yeah. So the Indian meal moths are actually, they're small when they're at rest, they have their wings kind of folded over their back. So I'm going to say they're maybe about half an inch and they are, um, kind of a, I don't know what a drab kind of creamy gray color. And then they have copper tips on their wings. That's a good description. Yeah, I I do my best. Um, And the larvae, you know, I actually, I know what these look like because we used to raise these when I was at Ohio State. (laughs) This was one of those that's like, we mixed up um, dog food and glycerin and honey. And we had jarfuls of these things that we would rear. I don't remember why we were rearing those. I think somebody was doing research on them. Um, But the larvae can be anywhere from a creamy kind of yellow color to sometimes more of a green to even sometimes a pink color, but they do have a well-developed head capsule. I'm going to say they're maybe a little over a quarter of an inch in length when they're like a fully grown larva. And then the pupa, when you find those, they will spin a little kind of a pupal cocoon, but it's usually in like a corner or along the ceiling or something like that. So anytime I see those, I just take a broom and kind of squish them and knock them down. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my experience with the, the moths. 
Um, and these are going to be in typically processed food that has plant-based, right? So um, they can be in dog food. They could be in uh, pastas, cereals, flours, cornmeal. They get into a ton of stuff, which is probably why they're so common because they eat so much stuff. Um, I've also had them in bird seed, which, so I guess they also feed on whole grains, right? Yeah. I mean, they're considered an external feeder where the, which just means the larva develop outside that whole grain, but they can feed. I mean, yeah, they develop on the outside, but they're, they are capable of feeding on the whole grain. So they're kind of a, a kind of a tweener. It doesn't have to be totally processed. I've also gotten them in macadamia nuts. My, um, we have a family friend that will, that is from Hawaii and she will come and bring my husband macadamia nuts. Cause he loves them and he will hide them and hoard them from everybody and then forget that he has all these macadamia nuts. And then we get Indian meal moths everywhere. And it's, you know, same thing, dig through the pantry and try to figure out what's hiding back there. And I'm like, why do you hide them? You don't even get to eat them because the Indian meal moths eat them for you, but they like, they like whole grains too, nuts. And, and I think bird seed is probably the most common one for a lot of people because they stop feeding those birds in the winter. And then they have all these moths come January or February. So clothes moths are going to not only be found in different locations than the pantry moths, but they're also going to look different. Does anybody want to talk about where they can be found and what they look like? They're quite a bit smaller, I believe, aren't they? And they are, the Indian meal moth has uh, that copper tip or bronzy kind of uh, rusty color to it. Whereas the clothes moths have clothes and case making clothes moths have a, just a creamy color to them. They're just kind of look like boring moths. And if you look at them up close, don't they have a tuft of hair between their eyeballs? Kind of like where you would pretend a nose would be. Yes. I call it Don King hair. <laughs> so yeah, they, they are tiny. And of course with clothes moths, they aren't necessarily going to be in the kitchen. Um, they, I mean, they, they can be, if you have like carpeting or I don't know, a rug or something in there, but a lot of times when you're dealing with clothes moths, they are going to be found in closets where you are storing clothing and other textiles. Um, and so they, yeah. they're more attracted to like protein based things as opposed to cellulose based things. Isn't that right? So wool, yes. dried uh, milk, powdered milk, I guess maybe even dried meat maybe, but yeah. definitely taxidermied animals and birds and things like that. Feathers. Yeah. So Feathers, silk, um, wool. What are, what are some other animal, animal-based textiles? Well, Leather. what I was thinking, was thinking was like sewing rooms, craft rooms, um, yarn, depending on the, the type of yarn you're using. Um, there's lots of places I've, I've run into them because again, depending on, you know, is it a bedroom that's also the storage room? That's also the junk closet, whatever. I mean, depending on where you store and what you have burlap, that's a, another one. I always seem to, well, when people say they have a problem with them, I always tell them look underneath things. So if you've got like a wool carpet or a wool rug, 
lift the coffee table up or the couch up or wherever something kind of crams up against that carpet. They like to squeeze underneath there. And I've noticed, um, if you have like a, a piece of equipment that generates a whole lot of heat or maybe an extension cord, um, that's sitting on the ground. One of those ones that, you know, has all the little sections where you can add extra stuff to it, whatever you call those things, but those power strips on the carpet with all that heat. And then I I knew a lady that had them so bad on her wool rug that when you lifted that power strip up, it was completely bald under there because they'd fed on all that. So they, I mean, even carpeting that you think is just synthetic. I think you have to look really closely because I think people would be surprised at what products they own that have an animal base or wool component to it. Well, again, on the top, it may be one thing, but when you on the bottom, one of the things they generally use on the bottom of especially nice carpeting is burlap is um, a lot of heavy fabric to keep it from skidding or keeping the, from fraying. So yeah. Or antique things. My mother has an old antique rocking chair and what is stuffed in the cushions for the armrest is that horse hair or some sort of yep. animal. Hair. So, you know, you, you have to be a detective and, and really look around for things. So while we're talking about all this, we, we were talking about the moths and we talked about what the adults look like. Cause those are the ones that are flying around. And that's typically what people cue in on because that's what they're seeing because those are the obvious ones since they're flying, but they're not the ones that are doing the damage. Yes. They are capable of mating and laying more eggs and causing the population to increase, but the larvae or the immature stage is the one that's actually doing the damage in both the pantry moth and the clothes moth case. So with the the pantry moth, we already talked what they look like. And a lot of times when you have food that's infested with them, they'll actually create webbing in that food. And so you'll kind of see that building up in there. And that's kind of a clue. Hey, (laughs) this has pantry moths in it. Um, But as far as the clothes moths are, they, the larvae there, you know, I think that they pretty much look alike. If you just had two of the larvae side by side without anything else, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you one from the other because they're both kind of creamy white with a head capsule and you know, that's about it. Um, but we have a case making clothes moth and we have, um, webbing clothes moth. That would be the other one. Um, so with the case mating and clothes moth, it actually spins a little tube that it drags along with it. And that's why it's called a case making clothes moth. And then the webbing clothes moth, it forms like a little, a web area in the area that it's feeding on the surface of whatever it's feeding on. And so that's going to be kind of in that area, but it doesn't actually drag that case around. So the other thing I think that we need to talk about is why is it important to tell the difference between pantry moths and clothes moths? So is there a difference in treatment for these or could there be difference in treatment? I mean, obviously you need to find whatever is infested and get rid of it. But as far as um, possibly cleaning or a pesticidal treatment, um, would you use one for and not the other? I believe so. I think for Indian meal moths, you can remove the infested food and 
and you want to not use any pesticides around the food or the food handling areas, you can use pheromone traps as a way to monitor, but you can also, if you use a ton of pheromone traps, which is a chemical that's released by this little plastic piece in a sticky triangle, it tricks the males into thinking there's a girl in there, a girlfriend. And if you use a ton of them, then you can confuse them and they'll just fly around until they exhaust themselves. And so if there's no boys to mate with the females and that can be a form of control, but you you have to inundate the area with that smell. And then for the, for the clothes moths though, you sometimes pesticide use is absolutely necessary. If it's something that you can throw out, you know, you can definitely throw that stuff out, but usually these are products, um, hides or carpeting or something that isn't easy to remove or something that is valuable to you. Maybe it's a wool jacket or something like that. Um, if it's clothing that they're on, then you can dry clean it and that should kill them and their eggs. But if it's hides, taxidermied animals that are salvageable, or you have one, like we had a pheasant on the mantle that was covered in, in clothes moths or case making moths. And they were, it was this poor pheasant looked like it had mange by the time it was all over. And we didn't catch it until, until somebody looked really closely at it and noticed that the, uh, that the, uh, feathers weren't actually attached. They were just kind of on it. Well, those guys then moved into other animals that my husband had. And so we had to treat those to salvage them while the was trash. So there, there are pesticides that are probably going to be used for the case making and the clothes moths, as opposed to the Indian meal moths. So when you are treating for clothes moths, um, cause people get concerned. It's like, well, I'm wearing these things. I don't want to spray pesticides on them. If you're talking about your actual clothes that you're laundering, you know, launder those the way that you would. Um, a lot of times you can put the stuff into the dryer on high heat and kind of cycle it through there for about an hour and that can kill everything. Or if it's something that's dry clean only, then you can take it to the dry cleaners and have them manage it. Uh, where things get tricky is when people have things like Molly mentioned taxidermied animals or a horsehair stuffed chair, or um, I've even seen homes that have wool carpeting that. <laughs> It's like, you can't take it out. It's the carpet. So, you know, you have to kind of think about how you're treating those. And some of those you can do, depending on what you have available to you, you can either do a pesticidal treatment. Um, you can certainly do like a vault fumigation. If you have a big kind of furniture piece, that's an antique stuffed with animal hair or something like that. Um, and then for the carpeting, you know, they could do a pesticidal treatment, but, you know, you can also try steam cleaning it and seeing how well that kind of takes care of the issue. Um, because if they're very conscientious and slow about their movements and, you know, covering every single area that can actually cut down on the population and help with that treatment without using pesticides. Um, so if you are treating for clothes moths and you're treating a closet area, generally you would want to remove all of the stuff from the closet and clean it real well, you know, vacuum everything up, take a bleach solution or cleaning solution of some sort and wipe any shelving down, any bars or whatnot. And then if you want to hire somebody to do that for you, or if you want to do it yourself, you can use a, the proper product for that area 
and you want to treat around the baseboard areas and kind of cracks and crevice areas. You wait for the product to completely dry before you move any of the stuff back in. So my next question is one that I get a lot, and I'm going to throw this one to Janet. What about cedar closets, cedar chests, those little cedar planks that you can buy that are on a coat hanger um, to put into your closet um, or, or even mothballs? What about those type of items for controlling things like this? All right, I'm going to break this one up because true cedar and... As a kid, my grandmother had, both my grandmothers had cedar chests and actually they had a cedar walk-in closet in, in the house. Yes, those worked great. I mean, especially if it's sealed. Matter of fact, I do have the, the cedar chest myself and I do keep my, my quilts in there, you know, and it not have had a problem. I've not been as... Well, does your cedar chest still smell? Cause I have a cedar chest that I got when I graduated from high school and mine does not smell anymore. It's like the cedar is past its lifetime or something. I mean, it's still cedar wood, but it doesn't have that very pungent when I first got it smell like off gassing. And you're like, yeah, you should, the, the, if I, if I not nick the bottom, I can get it. But if I just open it, Mostly I get clean bedding smell first <laughs> because like I said, I wash the quilts, put them in there and, you know, just pile and move and adjust. But that one, again, that cedar chest is 75 years or older. So different wood, you know, but the, the cedar planks, Depending on the closet you have and how it's built, they work okay. So generally what that generally what I recommend and what and just so our audience understands, once upon a time I used to sell ladies' clothing. So care and maintenance of clothing was something I would have to do, especially when you sell um, for for coats or wool coats or you know, suits that you would only wear at certain times. So yes, you can take um, the cedar plank and put it in a garment bag and again, hot, hang it on your closet. <clears throat> cedar is more of a repellent than an insecticide. It's just a, it's a natural aroma. And part of it has to do with the um, oils that are in cedar. So again, you know, as he was talking about, the smell, I mean, cedar, balsa, all those types of woods all have great aromatic properties and some are repellent. Now, let's well, talk that's about- that's also some, that's also why you need to make sure that there's a good seal in that area because mm -hmm. those volatiles that are off-gassing and filling up that space being repellent aren't going to last forever if you don't have a good seal in there. This is true. Now, let's talk about the product that doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy, and that is mothballs. Moth and, and the reason, audience, is mothballs have a use, but it is a very limited use. 
so Wizzy was talking about her cedar chest that no longer has um, the smell. And it could be that she has got grandma's antique quilt and she does want to preserve it. Or maybe you don't have a cedar chest and you're going to use a large Rubbermaid container. Yes, you can use those mothballs, but if you read the directions, it is not the entire box. Generally for a 30 gallon Rubbermaid container, it's one ball. Okay, and maybe you wanna put it in a sachet so it's not directly on the fabric. You don't take the mothballs and throw them in a coat closet so that not only is it in the coat closet, but it's emanating out into the hallway and such. That is a very toxic odor and it can be very um, harsh for somebody who has got, um, who's asthma or who has any respiratory problems. So that's why we uh, talk about caution and also just not just tossing it, AKA, let me go up to my attic and just throw mothballs up there. No, again, you can use like a couple and maybe put them in a, a little, um, what we call as a sachet, which is like cheesecloth or some other like lace little bag that you can put them in and then maybe hang them from a, a nail in your attic. But it would be like two, not 20. Did I miss anything, ladies? You also need to make sure that you're not chunking mothballs under the house in the crawl space to keep wild animals out because that's not a labeled application. And I've also seen people sprinkle them around the yard to either keep wild animals out of the yard or sometimes snakes. That's not going to work. And um, you can have some non-target organism be that a, you know, dog from your neighbors or a kid from your neighbors picking that up thinking that it's candy and possibly having a very serious issue so you don't want to just randomly chunk mothballs wherever you need to definitely read and follow the labeled instructions on those so molly uh, mentioned the use of pheromones for the pantry moths but we also, I mean, we, we talked about mothballs and using them safely, but we also need to take care when we're using pheromones as well, because these are also chemicals and, you know, they're doing things that that sort of thing does. Um, Janet, do you want to tell us your, your fantastic story? So we, we were talking about cedar and mothballs being somewhat repellent. The difference between those two and these pheromone traps that we've been talking about in these episodes about pantry pests is they are what we refer to as attractants. In other words, we're trying to attract boy or girl to said trap. For Indian male moss, it's generally trying to attract the males. Well, when I first started with the uh, and I'm AgriLife, one of our research assistants was doing research with our retired entomologist, Dr. Mike Merchant, and she was doing studies on Indian male moss, and she was having to put out these traps. Well, gloves or no, 
this attractant, no matter what, does seem to seep in the more you use it. Well, the best part about hanging out with my coworker, Margie, was she would go out and do these, these trap things, and then we'd go out to lunch. And it wouldn't be so bad, but when we would go to like um, an antique place that had like a tea room, we'd be sitting there and then all of a sudden she would start to see moss hanging out around her. And we would just start giggling, but this became so routine during the two years she was doing these studies that, I mean, her nickname became Pigpen. Because all you could think of was, you know, here she could be at a grocery store and all of a sudden she'd be standing in line. And again, little moths would appear and people would go, wow, what's that? And, and bless her heart, she would just sit there and go, I have no idea. I think you need to call pest control. And we would walk out and just laugh. But I mean, it, it, to the point where it was like, we were very glad when she finally ended that study. But it took several months for that pheromone to, to literally get out of her system so that they follow her around. So this is a good lesson for just the novice who thinks, oh, I want to do this. One of the things we do recommend with these traps don't overdo it. I have seen people think, oh, well, if one's great, I'll just use all 10 in the box. No, because then you could also attract moths from where you don't want them. Generally, one trap for one closet should be plenty. You know, follow and read directions. Everything we've talked about, not just on this podcast, but of every podcast, every product you deal with has a label and it has instructions on how to use it. Please follow it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwanted Guests. When you discover small moths fluttering around your home, it's important to identify if they're pantry moths or clothes moths. That way you can target the correct area for your inspection and treatment. For more information, go to extensionentomology.tamu.edu. We'll catch you next time.